Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario. And in the fall, we did an episode about my teaching exploits overseas when I was in China. And that, of course, was in a university setting. I thought it'd be interesting if we got a different perspective on overseas educational experiences. So we brought on a good friend of the show making her debut appearance, uh, Ashley Bain, a high school teacher here in Ottawa who has just returned from her third international trip with students uh, for, for educational purposes. So Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. So you, well, not just got back, you've been back a week and a half, roughly-ish? Oh, we got back last Friday. Oh, so just eight just days. A week. So we're recording this on on a Saturday, the Saturday before we're we're running it. So yeah, so just over a week, and it was your third time going abroad. So this trip, of course, with all the Vimy stuff coming up, included Vimy. Mm-hmm. But in general, if you just give the people a thrill, uh, the first two trips, where where did where did you go? So the first trip I did was to El Salvador, and that was more with a social justice group and an extension of our initiatives throughout the year. And the second trip was more um, of a bells and whistle European, Greece, and Italy trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this one, very heavily centered on France. Yes, however, we started in London for three right. days, and then we spent three days between France and Belgium, and then finished in Paris. Mm-hmm. And we should also note that this is not, these trips were not your first time in a teacher role overseas. No. (laughs) So um, after my bachelor's, when I was in that wondering what I want to do with life stage, and I was tinkering between law and teaching, I went abroad to Korea to teach. And then that's where I discovered, I guess as cheesy as it is, we say teaching is a vocation. And so that's kind of where I discovered that that's what I wanted to do, teaching abroad. Yeah. And we we also met abroad too, right? We met on a plane first time we met on a plane? I believe plane. it was in the airport, um, so that we made connected the dots. But okay. yes, we did meet on the plane. Yeah, and, and we, we uh, even though we went to different uh, schools for our undergraduate degrees, which you enjoy bringing up, <laughs> um, uh, we, we did the third year together at the University of the West Indies in Barbados. So you have a lot of international experience in educational settings. I'd say more than certainly the, the teachers that I know. Likely, yes, yeah. yeah. For, for me, at least, I would assume that when you go talk to parents in the lead-up to these trips, if they know your background, they would that would make them feel even more comfortable uh, on top of the fact that you're a good teacher and they know you from that, that mm-hmm. you have this international experience as well. That, that has to lead to a comfort level. Yeah, I think that, well, this past teacher meeting that we led, when that was brought up initially when I was just doing introductions and introducing the other supervisors who were going to be coming along when I spoke of my background with international experience and just also my passion for travel on my own and then university abroad and this and that, I do think that parents felt a little bit more at ease knowing that their child was going to be with somebody who was more experienced with international travel. Mm -hmm. And certainly with your colleagues too. I mean, Mm -hmm. that would be good for them too. People who are going on the first time, Mm -hmm. uh, be helpful that you know certain things that you have to do and stuff you might not have to do, like these sorts of things, right? Like yeah, just, it would be very difficult knowing. to do any sort of trip with students, especially if you have not done it before or mm-hmm. gone with somebody who has done it before. I didn't lead my first trip uh, when I went to El Salvador, but I wouldn't have known how to do things leading it now without that experience. Mm-hmm. So many things can happen along the way. Yeah. So... In preparing for these trips and getting the students ready to go, with any trip, everyone always talks about the trip itself and what happens when you're there, but especially in an educational setting, the preparation is so important as well. Like getting, not just in terms of the education, but actually getting everybody to the airport with all their (laughs) documents, getting everything ready to go. So I'm curious for for you in the lead up to these trips, What is the process like, both in terms of the administration and the pedagogical stuff? How do you prepare them in, in, for the educational aspects? So all three have been very different. The most recent one that I did, the Vimy trip, 
the parents sort of laughed at the parent meeting when I talked about emailing them because they were bombarded with emails from me because <laughs> I guess I'm uh, very hyper aware of their sensitivities and their concerns and so I wanted to make sure I was as transparent as possible with every step along the way so there's a ton of hours that go into a, a trip any any trip but especially an international trip so you know I run I help run the leadership camp at our school and we go away for two nights an hour away from Ottawa and that is a lot of work so mm. <laughs> it's tenfold when you're going abroad because parents are nervous. This is the first time a lot of their children have been away from home or been abroad. And so mm. suddenly their child is now going to be responsible for holding on to their passport, holding on to their medications. And so, and with everything going on in the climate right now, there's a lot of worries and anxieties around what could happen. And so it's, a lot of work goes into the preparation and calming everyone's nerves around those worries and um, yeah. Well, how much is it then the parents versus the students on those sorts of things? I, I would imagine the students, you know, they're high. I mean, we were all in high school. We we're just like, yeah, let's go abroad. This is going to be great. Yeah. Uh, and they don't really think of those practical concerns, I would assume. And that for those sorts of issues, it's mostly sort of smoothing things out with the parents and making sure that they feel comfortable because the kids are just excited anyway. Yeah, the kids are excited. However, every kid is very different. Some kids are just going along, but other kids come to see me every day at lunch with different questions. A lot of questions about what do I pack and mm. what snacks can I bring and <laughs> certain questions that come up that I'm not a travel expert in terms of like, one, for example, one question was what purse should I bring and they wanted to come in and show me a specific purse that they had specially made for the trip and my advice on was this practical and I thought well I'm not really in the travel bag business but right. I can offer my opinion so mm -hmm. can anyone else sure so it really depends I had a every time I do a trip my folder of for the trip has many subfolders under it and so I'll have a subfolder for parent emails or student emails or this one parent who emails two times a day, right. seven days a week. And so, and, and that's fine. I understand that. Everyone has different concerns and questions. And sometimes if the parent themselves hasn't traveled, there's going to be a lot more questions versus a parent that has traveled with their kids. And so there's a big range. But a lot of kids actually... Leaning up to the trip, too, they started to think about, oh, what more questions of how they were going to, that they would need to know themselves. Right, which makes sense. I think mm -hmm. for me, too, when I travel, the closer it gets, the more I start to think about, you know, what do I need? What should I take? These yeah. sorts of things. And even for me, I mean, I'm 31 years old and I get nervous that I'm going to lose my passport when I'm gone. So yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's a practical thing. Yeah, and that, we'd have lots of lunch hour meetings and kind of narrow in on different topics so we had a how to pack meeting and things like that which they just don't think about and sure. you know we're going to Europe where a lot of the hotels are you might have to go up walk up a few flights of stairs so the general rule of thumb is in your house walk up the stairs a few times carrying your bag and anything else you want to bring because when we're there you're carrying that right. so little things like that they, they have to actually practice and do are helpful before we get there and avoid any sort of crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's something you don't think about, especially the more you've traveled. Mm -hmm. You know, you just sort of get into this routine of, well, this is how I travel. And certainly you and I have talked about your travel routine <laughs> when, you're, when you're on your own. You have a very well-established routine. Established routine, um, <laughs> which sometimes I can't do when I'm traveling with a hundred teenagers. Right, but, but, but you forget <laughs> that. Like, if this is their first time traveling yeah. uh especially maybe on a long or not a road trip or or traveling without their parents that they don't have that well-established routine right and that you would have to walk them through the process a little bit yeah well it's sometimes comical when i'm giving suggested packing tips in my family because my dad likes to remind me of when why i was packing for barbados <laughs> and so i don't know if you remember this so we're packing for a year right yeah and Yes, we're going to a tropical place, so no the coats. packing should be yeah. light. But that was my first time packing for that amount of time. And so when we got to the airport, um, I my bag was way overweight. 
and so they had to put it in a separate plastic bag that they then taped many <laughs> times. And so I'll never forget arriving in Barbados and my bag coming through and then this shooting plastic ball comes through the gates <laughs> full of my stuff. And so then here I am giving suggested packing tips you know, 10 some years later. Yeah. I mean, that, it's an art. It Packing is. is an art. And I feel that I have mastered that art because I've learned what to pack more or less. Yeah. And how to pack too. Like, how to pack. Like mm -hmm. the roll, like rolling of clothes. This is something I started about a year ago. I think mm -hmm. right before I went to China, mm -hmm. my bag to China was all rolled everything. And that really saves space. Yeah. Or those um, compression bags that you can yeah. just suck all the air out of and yeah. Or just, Planning what you're going to wear and not having 20,000 options is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, like, so I just got back from nine days um, mm -hmm. doing a trip. But for some reason, I can, I can pack, I have a, a little bag that's a carry-on bag that I can do nine days with. But for some reason, if I go away for a weekend, it's filled the same amount. <laughs> and I, like, I think it's just when I'm gone for a weekend, I don't really think about I think about all the possibilities of, oh, if I'm going to do this, I want this. And like, whereas nine days, I'm like, all right, this day I'll be this. And then, the, like, you know, like I'm just more. Well, you have more of a set itinerary, so you know what yeah. you're going to need versus on a weekend. It's whatever. It, yeah. It's hopefully whatever. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. So, so those are sort of some of the practical concerns. In terms of the education part of it, mm -hmm. for the students, because this is an educational trip, mm -hmm. what are they doing in the lead up? in terms of classroom activities, even if it's not directly related to a course, what sort of academic work are they doing before they head off? So for the three I've done, they're all very different. Um, the trip that I did a few years back to El Salvador, there was a heavy educational component to it because we were going um, to learn from the community and visit different places. and so. There was every week for about almost a year after school, there was two hour workshops where they learned about the civil war that happened for the 12 years there, the political climate, social cultural differences, and what to expect going there. Mm -hmm. So that was very different in terms of the preparation for that. And the and who was responsible for doing that? Uh, like who was teaching those? Was that you or was that a team? So that trip, our former chaplain at the school, she was she had been involved for a number of years. Um, and there's an organization called Salvade in Ottawa, so mm. they as well would bring in things. But she definitely led that okay. uh, discussion. And since then, in I remain involved in the social justice group, and we have a new chaplain. And uh, he and I do different activities throughout the year and continue that fundraising element and our partnership with this one particular community in El Salvador called Sankara. And so our school's commitment and partnership is that throughout the year we have a variety of fundraisers and all the money goes to Sankara, to this very small community. And, and uh, with that money, the community selects a few students to continue their post-secondary studies. Mm. And the idea is that they go to post-secondary and study something that they can ideally bring back to the community to continue to grow and rebuild. Right. So in that case, it's, it's essentially the, the students are almost taking an additional course. Yes. Right. The, the amount of work that goes into it. Yes. Um, and for the Europe trips, just from talking to you before this, I get the sense that it's not as in-depth. No. No. Uh, however, the Vimy trip that we just did, there was more involved than the other European trip I did because of the anniversary of the Battle sure. of Vimy Ridge. Yeah. And so each, we, we really tried to provide them with more opportunities to get involved in the trip and to understand the importance. And, and so some of the things we did leading up to this trip in the f students participate in the army run and they could represent their soldier. So each student okay. that participated in the trip represented, they were associated with one of the 3,598 I'm not, I, whatever the number, it's died, a big number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who and died we, in the battle. And so just for anyone listening across the country, I think, I think the Army Run is only run in Ottawa, I don't know. 
Um, yes, I believe so. So the army run every year in the fall, September? September. Uh, late September. The the city in the downtown core was sort of shut down for the army run. There's different, is there different lengths? Is it a yes. 5K, 10K? Yeah, so that's a, a an Ottawa event. So obviously with the school being in Ottawa, that's a, a good chance for the students then to represent that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good connection. So that that's an interesting way. So what, how do they represent them in the race then? So each student that participated in the trip was given a soldier to represent for the whole experience and they had to research that soldier. So they Mm. looked up their service number, their date of birth, their background, anything that they could find. So when they, the students that chose to participate on the run on the back of their shirts, they had their, that soldier's name on the back of their shirt. Oh, cool. Also, we had the yellow ribbon project, which was completed beginning of or end of March. And so the Vimy Memorial Bridge in Riverside South that connects Riverside South to Barhaven. Right. So the... Which, which uh, took like 25 years to build. And <laughs> it's Ottawa. It was way behind schedule. <laughs> so cool. yeah. that's, that's the Ottawa way. Yeah. At least it wasn't an extension of a new road that went a different direction. <laughs> but um, so the ribbons went out to all the elementary schools in our board and elementary students wrote a one of the soldiers' names on the ribbon and a message to that soldier. And then the students, most of the students that participated on the trip were involved in it and they tied the ribbons along the bridge to have Mm. sort of a visual representation. And it's still up today. It's going to be taken down in the next couple of weeks just for environmental reasons and things like that. But so that was something that they did as well. And the biggest uh, component to the trip that they had to complete, which Normally, you don't see on a this type of trip, a European sort of trip mm-hmm. that's not associated to the classroom. They had to create a tribute to their soldier. And that tribute, they then left at the soldier's grave when we visited the cemetery. So that was a pretty touching and element of the trip and unique. And so they the tributes were really well done. And they were they had creative freedom in terms of what they wanted to do. They could do a poem, they could do an illustration. Many of the students created these amazing wood sculptures. Wow. Yeah, and some of them were recreations of the Vimy Memorial, and they were fantastic. And so they are going to be uploaded to the Canadian Virtual War Memorial, which is hosted by Veterans Affairs Canada. Oh, wow. So they're oh, all cool. available to see there, which is really nice for families of they can go in and see their, you know, great, great grandfather, or whoever, yeah. and look their name up and then see this tribute that was created for them. Yeah. And, and what's cool about it too, is that the students would have a personal connection. I mean, if you spent the whole year mm-hmm. researching this person, yeah. doing work about their life and their service, and then you actually get to see the grave that it's not just the sort of thing that they're paying lip service to no, they would actually care at that point yeah it's a much more kind of deep learning experience for them to mm-hmm. really connect with the purpose of it and when we were when we attended the Vimy ceremony I think that again helped them understand the importance that much more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so for you as as a teacher having done these sorts of trips do you find that these students are are more engaged in the content knowing that they're going on this trip or, or even during the trip? Are they more engaged than a traditional classroom setting? Or is it one of these things that it's dependent on the student, uh, dependent on who's leading a session or depending on what attraction you're going to on the trip? Like, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering about the... Because for me, the, I hated high school. Uh, the classroom... I hated the classroom experience in high school. I really... Mm-hmm. I, I didn't find it engaging for the most, some exceptions, but mm-hmm. for the most part, I wasn't engaged most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it, for me, a trip like this would have been good for the engaging part. I wouldn't have done it just personality-wise, but um, for, for <laughs> hey, the type... Yeah, I could have been your teacher. <laughs> yeah, you would have had to really... Like, I, I was very withdrawn in high school. Yeah. Um, so I probably wouldn't... I w- certainly wouldn't have volunteered for something like this. My father always says that he almost drove off the road when I told him I wanted to do an exchange. <laughs> that he was just so... And in Barbados. Like, he was so shocked that I, I wanted to do it. Um, for me, I think the engagement would have been really good. So I'm just curious how the, how the students engage with the material and, and do you notice a big difference in terms of student engagement versus a, a traditional classroom setting? Absolutely. 
So before they sign up, they're going to see the itinerary. And the itinerary, I kind of call it an appetizer trip. So mm. you're going to, we're going to go in, it's going to be a whirlwind. We're going to try and see as many things as possible, get to as many museums as possible, see as many historical sites as possible. We might not spend a whole lot of time at every place, but at least they have an overview of that city or country or museum or place. And then they can myself included, decide, is this a place I need to go back and spend more time at? Mm. And unlike an all-inclusive or other trips that some of them may have done, they haven't had that sort of educational component. They're not spending hours learning about the history of this or this. Or they're just not, it's a very different trip in that sense. So I think you have students that are participating in trips like this because they want that experiential learning opportunity mm -hmm. and for some I mean the social justice trip I think that bridged more understanding and meaning towards what was the purpose of what we were doing at the school level mm -hmm. and then they could actually meet the community members and see why it's so important and foster that understanding and the European trips like the Greece and Italy and then France and the UK um, I think that they have an opportunity just to be exposed to a lot of things that they wouldn't do on their own time, myself included. I might not spend three hours waiting in line to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. That I just know that that would be right. part of what I would have done in Paris, mm -hmm. but this is the type of trip where you, you do that and you mm -hmm. get to see that and so they get a lot of exposure in that way. Mm -hmm. In your experience, is there a type of attraction, a type of place that they go, that you go as a group, that is more engaging, that people tend to enjoy more than others, in terms of just stylistic, like, like are monuments better than museums, or are walking tours better than monuments? Like, is there a type of attraction, or is it very individualistic, it, uh, it just depends on the kid? I would say it's more individualistic. I think across the board, their favorite time is free time. <laughs> and so, which, fair enough, right? Like, yeah. that's where they get to go and explore and be in a new country with their friends. And they get they can, you know, go to another museum. They can spend more time in the museum we're at. Or they can blow through it and then go shopping. And so, right. you know, they're going to do what they want. And sometimes that's the best learning experiences is that they're given that small piece of independence within a small, you know, a certain radius and proximity yeah. where they're told to be in one hour time slot, but that's freedom for them. And that's mm. on its own as a new uh, opportunity for them. Like with anything else, when you have a chance to do things on your own terms, you're going to be more engaged. So if I choose to go to a museum mm -hmm. for an hour, mm -hmm. then it's my choice to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll be more engaged than if I'm being told I have to. Yes. Sort of thing. And especially when you're 16 years old mm -hmm. and you're just trying to rebel against any people telling you what to do. Mm -hmm. Or when you're 31 and you're trying to rebel against people telling you what you have to do. <laughs> um, it's, it could be helpful uh, in that regard. But, but within that realm then, obviously you're there as to, to supervise and to make sure nothing bad happens uh, to the students and that everyone is where they need to be. So there's that obvious supervisory role, but you're also a teacher. So do you have a chance to teach on these trips or, or how much instruction goes on? Maybe not in terms of sitting them down in a classroom type setting, but you know, going from place to place in the attractions themselves. Are you teaching in, in a sense that you feel like you're teaching or are you in your own head more there is the supervisory role? I would say it's an extension of teaching outside of the classroom. Okay. So any classroom, there's a supervisory role, there's the teaching role. Sure. And I think that just continues, but abroad, in different contexts, different surroundings. But you might not be teaching a specific curriculum. I feel on these trips, you almost have the whole 24 hours every day is teaching. So from simple things that aren't part of the regular Ontario curriculum, like setting your alarm and right. <laughs> bed checks and making sure that they're rested, making sure they're remembering to eat and drink water and things like that. But to the more important elements of 
what we're seeing and talking to them about what they think and asking them questions and this past group we were so lucky because the kids were so engaged and so interested in what we were doing and so I just felt that when they even had free time when we got back together it wasn't we weren't worried about them getting into trouble they were asking right. oh miss did you see this and what did that mean in the museum and right. That picture of Churchill, is that the one he didn't like of himself? And mm. so that was really cool that they were really invested in what we were looking at and seeing. And I really liked that. And so it's more teaching through dialogue and mm. pointing things out maybe. But there's opportunities within the tour director who would be with us for the whole trip. I obviously have a background teaching history. And so certain things that I might want to see, I can point out to the tour director and then maybe we can build that into our day somehow. Right. Like there's flexibility in terms of the itinerary sometimes to make sure that we can see things that I might want to see and then I know could be very interesting to the student. Right, so it's almost like leading a seminar sort of thing where, where you're just trying to foster discussion, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just in a very different setting. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that's the most, I love teaching seminars. I think it's the most fun thing mm -hmm. in the world to do because you're engaged, you as the instructor, I find, are more engaged than when you're lecturing. For me personally, I, I just, because yeah. I have to listen to what they're saying and respond to what they're saying. Whereas at a lecture, it's very one way, and which I don't enjoy nearly as much. Right. Um, and your, your passion is travel and teaching and you get to do that together. Mm -hmm. It's unique. Yeah, and and once they and once they're engaged too, like that's really the best part, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's super fun. So you mentioned that you can sometimes go to the tour director and point things out that you would want to do. What sort of stuff do you find really engaging on these trips? Like, what's the best part for you in terms of attractions? It's not so much in terms of attractions as the anecdotal stories. I like it okay. if they can provide sort of interesting background stories that the kids are going to remember, you know, that's when certain things have happened here. They know those, those, I think kids remember that. I myself remember things like that. And so when they, when there's opportunities for that, I think are important. Um, some things, for example, in London, we weren't going to go to Buckingham Palace. And I thought, this is important. They, we, right. I think the kids should at least get to see it. And again, that, that can be a little appetizer for them, and they can sure. decide if they want to come back to it. But little things like that that I know the kids are interested in, and they want to see it. So there's flexibility sometimes in that. And it's more so also knowing what the kids' interests are and trying to bring that into the itinerary sometimes. Mm. Even when we're in Vimy, the, the actual ceremony day was so busy. And so we, after the following Two days later, after we had done our cemetery visit, we were so close to the memorial, so I asked that, can we go back to the memorial? Because I think it'd be really nice for them to see it and to walk up on the monument and look around because they didn't have the opportunity to do that the day before. And mm -hmm. it's such a special place and monument that I think we needed to spend more time at it. And so we did. And it was more of a, the bus dropped, up, dropped us off and our Italian tour director gave us 10 minutes and the kids sprinted there, we got a picture. <laughs> but even that was fun, right? They'll, mm. They're going to remember taking the bus up to the top, running to Vimy and taking a photo and getting to walk on where they saw world leaders a couple of days before. Yeah, and, and again, with that connection that they would have had with the soldier too and, mm. and just the space of Vimy is, is the opportunity to experience it in its totality. It would be pretty cool. Yeah, and um, part of the ceremony is a lot of people probably saw on TV, they had the, the boots. So they had boot, soldier boots all lined up going towards the memorial and all around it. And so while we were there, when we, when we went, ran back up, we met, there were a bunch of uh, different ministers that were visiting. And so the minister uh, from Veterans Affairs was there having, and so as was the coordinator of the whole event. And so he said, you know, things didn't really go as planned in terms of these boots. So if your kids want to take a couple of pairs of boots back with them, you, you oh. can grab a couple. So, of course, a lot of the kids thought that was amazing. Yeah. And, and it's those little things that are important. And so anytime you saw an opportunity like that, we would try to make that happen for the kids. Mm -hmm. 
And I find, too, that it, it gets the chance to create a real-world experience off of what has been taught in the class, right? Because, I mean, that grade 10 in Ontario, the grade 10 Canadian history course is so focused, or in, when I took it, it was very focused on the world wars. Um, you've talked about when you teach it, you like to really focus on the war, uh, the wars as well, no? Well, well time-wise, in terms of the time, maybe I should say this differently, in terms of the amount of time you actually have to teach the course, right. you don't have a lot of time to get past the wars, and you've come up with really cool ways to incorporate the second half of the 20th century with your decades idea, but mm -hmm. in terms of the, the just available time that a lot of that course is spent on the wars, mm -hmm. if I can say it better like that. So, but that, then this is then an extension of that classroom material, mm -hmm. which is pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's one thing to read a little paragraph in a textbook about the Battle of Beaumont-Hamel and then to actually go and see it and understand that this was a football field of land and that many Newfoundland soldiers died trying to cross right. it. So for sure, they it's it, I think for all of the kids, save for the Gwens in grade 9, they would have had that grade 10 history curriculum and so they're able to make a lot more connections with mm -hmm. their prior learning mm -hmm. in a meaningful way. Yeah, and is there any other way, intentional or otherwise, that the trip tries to connect back to in-class curriculum and in-class material? So, the Ontario Catholic School graduate expectations, there's different ways that even a trip like this really builds on them. So, being an effective communicator, understanding how to be independent and mm -hmm. having those conversations. We encourage them, for example, when we are at Vimy, to approach the people in uniform and thank them for their service and little things like that allow them to build on their communication right. abilities. Another one would be becoming a responsible lifelong learner. So I think any travel enriches your life mm -hmm. hands down. And so having the opportunity to see the world in a different way but in a protected way, in a protected environment, allows them that ability to start thinking about new opportunities. And a few students have already come up to me since this past trip and said, you know, I think after this I want to go abroad or I might want to spend a year abroad like you did. And right. they start thinking about things which they might not have before or they see places that really inspire them or they want to continue to take electives in history or social sciences which before then they may not have and so I think that is an opportunity them, for them to grow in a lot of ways as well. Yeah because you get to see and I mean high school is so fishbowly right that you for a lot of for me and I think a lot of my my friends when I, where I grew up who sort of you it's hard to see outside of it and a trip like this just dumps you, takes you outside of it, and then it's sort of this illumination of there is so much else mm -hmm. that's out there, and the stuff that I've learned about, I can be, I can experience it firsthand and really engage in it, and it's all these cool opportunities. So it's great that the students are, even if they're not necessarily explicitly putting it in those sorts of terms, that they, they are finding that, and that they want to explore further and, and continue to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not limited to their friends that they make within the confines of the building. Right, yeah, mm -hmm. which, you know, and, and in high school it's hard to think of a world outside of that. Mm -hmm. For the students then, they get this great opportunity, they get to go abroad, they get to experience all these things. When they come back to Canada, and obviously they've only been back now for a week in, in this case, mm -hmm. and certainly each trip would be different, in, in what the expectations are, but when they come back, is there a chance to reflect on what they've done, and is there any compulsory component that they have to complete at the end of the trip? Nothing from a school point of view for the ones I've been involved in, okay. aside from them getting caught up on sleep and <laughs> catching up on their regular coursework, which ideally they've done before they leave for the trip. But the connections I think they make with the kids on the trip are very unique. And a lot mm -hmm. of times you see new friendships 
developed and so those maintain and I'm sure a lot of the kids make friends with people that they wouldn't normally have gravitated towards and then suddenly they're put in this environment and they have so much in common and so that's really special I think long term for some of the students. This past trip we felt so lucky because the kids were so amazing and they were all there for the right reasons and we just had everything went our way. The weather went our way, our tour guide, our students, the supervisors, everything just gelled and so the myself and the other teachers that came on the trip were saying we miss the kids and that's unusual, <laughs> right? After you spend 24 hours a day for 10 days with students, yeah. or you might anyone. not miss like, them. With anyone, <laughs> let's be honest. But yeah, exactly and so usually travel makes or breaks relationships and so mm. we uh, we're going to have a reunion lunch with them and share pictures and stories and because it was a unique trip and and um, so there's opportunities like that and then I'm sure for the students just having and uh, like there were four teachers from my school who went and none of us currently teach most of them mm. myself being in special education it's a different role as well and so now they have four new adults in the building that they can go to to ask questions about or mm. and I think that's positive for the students as well as aside from the friendships that they've made with their peers just having other people to go to to get ideas from is never a bad thing sure and, and especially in a setting where they've seen you as human beings yes right? like you're again outside of the fishbowl of the high school where you know, that's the only place where teachers are allowed to exist. Exactly. It's, it's in school. Yeah. And so they've seen you outside of that setting and yeah. they and might feel more comfortable coming to you with questions about post-secondary stuff and, and yeah. like broader questions. Yeah, that just this past week I, uh, I have a firm no, no students from, no past students on my Facebook <laughs> rule. Uh, Just because... Uh, it's a good rule. It's smart. Yeah. Social media, you never know. And I don't care for Facebook too much in general, but I do appreciate the connections that you can maintain through it. Right. Mostly from my travel experiences. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so, just this past week, a student messaged me who I had taught years ago, and she remembered me sharing just my experience going to Korea to teach. And Sure enough, she remembered that, and so she was asking me if I can help point her in the right direction and things like that. And right. so they do remember things like that, and I think it's helpful for them. Um, another thing that the this group of kids, the Vimy kids, we're going to offer them the opportunity to work on a, one of the display cases in the school for Remembrance Day. Oh, cool. So that will be... That's a good idea. Yeah, that will be nice for them to get together and to collaborate on that and really do something special with it. Mm -hmm. Now, those are the positives that come out of the trip. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a scenario, though, when students get back and going back into a classroom could be tough. That they've had this experience, they've, they've had this cool experiential learning, and now to go back into a, a classroom setting could be a difficult transition. Has that happened with any students, or is it, is it tend to be pretty smooth? Well... And again, you're not teaching them, so maybe you don't have the direct knowledge mm -hmm. uh, of being in the classroom with them, but I, I don't know if from other teachers have you heard or if the students themselves come and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not digging this <laughs> yeah. anymore. I'm not digging being back in the yeah. desk. Um, for sure, there's, that's normal. And I think any trip you take, the experiences that you had and doesn't really settle in until you're back for a week and you start really kind of appreciating what you've just done yeah. and experienced and you look through your pictures and... So, attention-wise, their minds might still be in Paris, but um, it's good that it's May, and so they kind of have to buckle down with the, well, going to be May soon, and so there isn't a whole lot of opportunity not to get the work done, which is right. good. On the El Salvador trip, I think, I know that the students had difficulty coming back because of it was a completely different type of trip. And so suddenly being back in North America where everything is, life is much more relatively easy is hard. After you spend a lot of time in these small communities where they have so little, I think a right. lot of students struggled with our wealth in terms of luxuries in life. Mm. And so 
that that is hard for students to readjust and community you know in Central America it's so everything is about community and your neighbor and then they go back to their suburban home where they might know one person on the street and right. it's, so it's very different that's more of a an adjustment for them hmm. and but I think a, an important adjustment because sure. it raises awareness about the injustices and how more work needs to be done and you know, often it encourages them to be even more involved and more passionate about exploring social justice initiatives that, and causes. Right, and that was sort of the point of the whole trip, right, is to get in that social justice element, I mean, that's the name of the club, and having that level of involvement and, you know, going through the course type material for a year leading up to the trip and having such a deep investment in it that I could see it being difficult at the end of it, mm -hmm. uh, coming back and, and trying to deal with it. But that's in part, I would assume, why you have maintained that connection between the school and the community, mm -hmm. in part, right? That the students would have wanted that uh, coming back and that they would engage in it. Yeah, and it's a very different trip because you're going to learn from the community. You're not going to visit this mm -hmm. place and that place and and you're not going to build a well, stick a plaque on it, and come home. You're going just to sit and talk and listen. Right. Which is a skill set that is difficult for some. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, having these opportunities to do this experiential learning abroad, you've taught history. Uh, you're not currently teaching history right now, as you mentioned. But we live in a town where there's a lot of opportunities for experiential learning about town. Is this the sort of thing that we, and I'll include myself in it, teaching at this post-secondary level, that we as instructors of history need to do a better job of incorporating these experimental, experiential elements, even if we only do it locally and don't have the opportunity to go abroad? Have you found that it's, it's something that we should be more focused on trying to incorporate in our courses? As much as possible, I think we do try to do that. The logistics of planning trips has become much more, I'm looking for an appropriate word. Complicated? Complicated is, is a kosher word for it. <laughs> um, the amount of forms and time that goes into planning a trip just to go to the war museum is mm. so, and, and then the cost. Right. So as much as possible, I think, that teachers do try to incorporate those opportunities. I know for history at our school, they always go to the War Museum, the Diefenbunker, and what sometimes is easier in terms of logistics is bringing in speakers, right? which can offer yeah. so much as well. So bringing in outside community members to help complement the curriculum, I think, is always a good idea because... Those are the things that the students remember. Sure. They remember the field trips. They remember the speaker that came in. They don't necessarily always, I know myself, when I think back to high school, I'm not, I don't remember all of the chapters I read and the notes I took on it, but I do remember the speaker that came in and said something that spoke to me. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it personalizes it, certainly. Mm -hmm. and, and I know, I mean, even on our post-secondary experience, I don't know if Pedro Wells was the first course, her first history course she took? No, um, he wasn't. It was Alvin Thompson. Right, right. But Pedro Welch was the first one that I ever talked to in taking. <laughs> um, and and there's a lot to remember about that class. There is certainly a lot to remember. Um, I think you should provide some context on that one. So, so <laughs> when we were in Barbados, I took uh, multiple courses from a professor named Pedro Welch, who is a senior professor at the University of the West Indies. Uh, he does a lot of work on the social movements in the British Caribbean through the end of slavery and then into the, the early post-slavery period. So I took, actually, the way my schedule worked while I was there, I had him every day, uh, Monday through Friday, <laughs> both semesters. That was not a coincidence. Um, no, it wasn't. I, Pedro Welch was one of the best professors I've ever had. And at, after Christmas, when we came back, I was taking a course called Protests and Popular Movements in the British Caribbean, 
I can't remember the years on it. I think it was 1830 to 1870 or something. It was 19th century mm -hmm. centric. And you needed a course. Mm -hmm. And I said that this guy is great. Uh, you, you'll like the course. It fit within your schedule. And when we got to the class, Pedro <laughs> Welch was so excited to see you there that he would often make reference to the fact that you were there. Yes. And, and I, I never felt it was inappropriate. And as much as I love being the center of attention. Right. I think it was more that. Like, we were in this, it, it, there was, I don't know, maybe 35 people in the class, but we were in a lecture hall that probably sat 60, maybe. And we would sit towards the back of where the people were. And when Pedro Welch would say something and all the heads turned towards us, mm -hmm. you didn't really enjoy that. No, I think my have... Uh... Uh, the ability to go from my natural skin color to bright red <laughs> yeah. in a matter of five seconds. Yeah, especially when Do not like attention on me. Especially when it's 400 <laughs> degrees outside. It's yeah, it really help. easy help. for that to happen. But And then when I volunteered to be the course rep, I, I think you really, you really didn't like that. No. Um, but I remember a lot about that class. And I remember a lot of what Pedro Welch taught me because of that. And And I don't know if you feel the same, but... It seems to me that when you have somebody who can do something that's different, that stands out from what other people are doing stylistically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I, I liked Alvin Thompson as well. He was mm -hmm. very good at what he did, but I really only remember the seminar part in his office. I don't remember much of his lectures other mm -hmm. than it was in the coldest room on campus and I literally carried a pair of track pants mm -hmm. to class and put them on when I got in the room and then took them off uh, and left. Uh, like I just put them on over my shorts and like that's the only thing I remember about the lectures Yeah, I remember his one-on-ones, but I I don't remember much about his lectures, but Pedro Welch I really remember the lectures mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, and I, I there's definitely some teachers. I feel that way about it um, from U of T from my undergrad there and One in particular he was so I Took every class that I could with him because he was just such a unique guy and in terms of his pedagogical practice and I right. loved it you know he would have us go to a courtroom and just study one thing that day so look only at the accused today or the next day I'll look only at the accused family today and mm -hmm. so it was really interesting and I remember in my fourth year I took one of his seminar courses and on the course he was very pro decriminalization of marijuana and that type of element to him and he represented a lot of people in that in the decriminalization movement um, as well as the decriminalization of prostitution so uh, different types of segments of the population right and so on our course outline on the first day of class every day it said you know roughly what we were going to cover he often went off script which i appreciated and on the last class or no sorry it wasn't the last class but midway through the semester said a visit from a dominatrix <laughs> <laughs> and so all of us thought this is a typo what's going on here and uh sure enough that class he brought in a dominatrix he brought in he shouldn't say brought in invited this man that was wearing a, an adult male that was wearing a bonnet and a diaper and a soother and I'll never forget that class I'll never forget sure. the questions that came up to those people and uh, just things like that right they, he exposed us to so much and a lot of the people in the course were interested in going into law myself included at the time and so it was very interesting. We'd have our little criminal codes on our desks and then we'd be looking up sections of it while he would lecture and tell us stories about cases that he was currently involved with. And it was those types of professors for me that probably at the time I didn't realize it, but today have influenced my own teaching practice. And not that I'm going to bring in a dominatrix to a Catholic school, but <laughs> just that that idea of not being so rigid with the curriculum right. and allowing yourself those opportunities to go off script and just to 
also be human with the students. Those are the teachers that I remember. Yeah, I, I agree. Even on the plane, though, sometimes the teachers, we have to allow ourselves to be human. So <laughs> the seats are assigned on the airplane. And so I'm sitting beside a couple students, and we have the little TV screen in front of us, and I'm looking for something to watch. And I know that there's, I'm on an aisle seat, so there's students beside me in the middle aisle, there's students behind me. They can all see what I'm watching. Yeah. And sometimes it's a bit awkward if you're watching something and there's a little scene that comes on that maybe you don't really want to watch in front of your students. Sure. Not that I'm the artistic director of the film, but <laughs> unfortunately that can happen sometimes. And so there's moments where something like that would happen. I was watching a... I don't know which movie it was. And then sure enough, you know, a scene comes on and I turned it off because I just don't <laughs> want to be that teacher where, you know, next thing I know I'm on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever else they have. And yeah. there's the picture of Miss Bain watching, watching the sex scene sex scene with the student beside yeah. her. So, like, <laughs> But then, you know, you have to kind of just remember that you're a human and you're not in charge of, you can't control everything just like they can't. And right. you just have to let them not let you see, let them see you watch things that are inappropriate, but you know, just be kind of realize that you're both human. And, yeah. and also, don't pretend it doesn't exist. Like the scene exists. Like, yeah. The scene exists. It happens. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're watching like way worse things right beside me. <laughs> no care in the world, but also just allowing, you know, not, yes, we're a supervisor there, but, not treating them that way all the time, right? Allowing right. them to be young adults and talking to them not like they're a student, but they're just... A, I think they appreciate things like that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and certainly it's... I think it's a good message, too, then, to, that, to continue in the classroom and mm -hmm. try and maintain that style and, and keep people engaged. So... Uh, it's, it's, I think, a good opportunity to engage in that type of learning for them and then also for you and uh, mm -hmm. to bring it back and, and something that I think all of us who teach in, in any setting can try and incorporate mm -hmm. stylistically at the very least. Yes. I know you just got back, but I assume this is the sort of thing that you would not prohibit from doing again. No. no. I would certainly be interested in not next year <laughs> but maybe the year after and organizing something or being part of something like this again and just because I know how important travel is to me and if you have the opportunity in your career to absolutely share that yeah. with others and especially on young minds I think it's a unique position to be in that I don't think you can be in in most careers in the world. Ah, very, very good point and well said. So thank you for coming in. Thanks, Sean. We appreciate that. Ashley Bain, friend of the show, first time appearance, hopefully not the last time. We'll see. We can... <laughs> we'll see if you guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.